Hello and welcome to episode 98 of Commonplace with Tori Peters, author of the novel Detransition Baby, and two novellas, Infect Your Friends and Loved Ones and The Masker. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. I recorded this conversation with Tori Peters on November 2nd, 2021, in her apartment. Everything about making this episode felt like a return to pleasure and to in-person connection. Commonplace producer V. Conady gave me Detransition Baby the first time we met in person in Central Park. I read the novel in Maine last summer, loved it, gave copies to several friends. My friends and I talked and argued about the book on the phone and in person when Joan came to stay with me during the COVID lull before Delta. Reading a novel talking about it in person with a friend, these were things I wasn't sure would ever happen again in the long, dark months of COVID isolation. Would I be able to read again? Would I care enough about a novel to argue about it? Imagine my delight when, in fall 2021, Tori agreed to be on Commonplace and agreed to record face-to-face. At that time, I was teaching two in-person undergraduate poetry workshops on one very long Wednesday a week. But other than trekking down to NYU each Wednesday morning and wandering around the East Village between classes and office hours, I barely saw anyone in person, hardly ever left my neighborhood in Washington Heights. I was trying to protect myself, my students, my neighbors, and my family from covid while also trying to survive the loneliness of divorce. I was trying to redefine myself as the divorced, nearly 50-year-old cis woman living in New York City who had just had a terrifying cancer scare, was entering menopause, entering the dating world. There was a lot going on. To then find myself inside Tori Peters' incredible apartment, getting to talk with her about her novel, sexuality, gender identity, motherhood, divorce, and my lifelong obsessional questions, empathy, appropriation, shame, writing, talking across difference, it was incredible. You'll hear me fangirl a little. I think I get this way with novelists in general, but also because Tori is so open present, generous, and brilliant. I know you're going to enjoy this one. Tori Peters was the first trans woman to be nominated for the Women's Prize for Fiction. Her novel, Detransition Baby, is among the first written by a trans author to be released by one of the big five publishing houses in the U.S. It's been on many best of lists, was nominated for the John Leonard Prize, the Goodreads Choice Awards Best Fiction, the Goodreads Choice Awards Best Debut Novel, and just a few days ago, won the Penn Hemingway Award for Debut Novel. Tori rides a pink motorcycle and splits her time between Brooklyn and an off-grid cabin in Vermont. For this episode, some members of the Commonplace Book Club will receive a copy of one of the following books. Detransition Baby by Tori Peters, courtesy of One World Random House. Susan Sontag's Illness as Metaphor, courtesy of Picador. 
Rahib Almadine's The Wrong End of the Telescope, courtesy of Grove Atlantic, and Casey Plett's Little Fish, courtesy of Arsenal Pulp. Many thanks to these publishers who give us these and other incredible books. And many, many, many thanks to each and every patron who supports Commonplace. Commonplace has no ads, no institutional support, and relies on the support of our patrons. To find out how to become a patron or to sign up for our newsletter, please visit commonpodcast.com or patreon.com slash commonplace podcast. For this episode, Commonplace's charitable partner will donate $250 to Trans Equity Consulting, an organization chosen by Tori Peters. Trans Equity Consulting is committed to building the leadership of trans women of color and to the centering of sex workers, immigrants, and incarcerated peoples as experts in creating a more just world. Lastly, before we get to the conversation, I want to give context to two things Tori mentions about halfway into the episode. The Glamour Boutique section is an emotionally charged chapter of Detransition Baby, told in flashback that sees one of the two main characters visit a Glamour Boutique serving cross-dressing and transgender customers, and deals with the emotional impact of that first experience of gender fluidity. Cat Person is a story told by Kristen Rupenian that was published in The New Yorker in December 2017. The story immediately went viral on Twitter and received much praise and criticism for its frank portrayal of modern dating and power dynamics between cis men and women. Okay, here's Tori Peters. Amazing. It's kind of mind-boggling. Here we are in like a corporeal form. So, right, so this is a funny moment for me because... I've had no, I haven't heard your quote unquote and no quotes voice uh-huh. until this moment because we've communicated through email through others. Yes. Um, and other than your writing voice through the three characters and well, there's more than three characters in the book, but the three main characters in Detransition Baby. I did hear one interview with you. Like I've I've read a, f- yeah. a bunch of interviews with you, but I heard the NPR interview. All right, yeah. And I kind of wanted to start uh, with a question that that you were asked and you answered, but I was hoping for like a little more. Sure. I loved that. You know, there's there the book is first of all incredible. I loved reading it. Um, it was given to me as a gift by um, Valentine Conady, who's one of the producers on Commonplace. And um, so it's been really fun talking with them about like what, you know, mm-hmm. who each of us identifies yeah. with and why and, you know, which uh, are our favorite parts and like moments where we're like, and then I want to know what happened. <laughs> um, so it's 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 been incredibly fun. So. The book is doing really well. I have given, uh, I think, four copies oh, as gifts. You. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and then gotten to talk to my friends also about that. And it's being sort of presented as like the first of its kind uh-huh. in many ways. And it is and it isn't. And I loved how you sort of corrected or 
responded to the NPR interviewer and said like, well, you know, I didn't come from nowhere and the yeah. book didn't come from nowhere. And I was hoping that you would like describe a little bit the sort of trans women creating yeah. work scene in Brooklyn in the 2014-15, yeah. you know, and like what that was like. So it started without me. Like I moved to Brooklyn to join it. Um, it started, I mean, there's, it was sort of like a bunch of different threads and, and they came together and like any sort of art scene, you know, it wasn't totally cohesive and there were antagonisms and, and <laughs> schisms and, and, you know, uh, not everybody would agree that like mine, it, there's certainly no like canonical story of it, but for me, it started with with Topside Press, which was this press that published first an anthology of trans writing and then a novel called A Nevada by Imogen Binney. And the idea of it was trans women writing for other trans women or trans people writing for other trans people. But what happened was that uh, they had this way of 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 kind of publishing that was it was very DIY it was very like circulating amongst each other but then they also um, to sort of gather more trans people they would go on tour and the people with who had published books would say to anybody who was a, any trans person around was like okay these two published authors are going to go on stage but if you're in town and you're trans and you have some writing come read and so you got these situations where there were people who had never read their, their stuff before reading with these people. And it wasn't so much about whether the things were quality so much as like, what did it feel like to read your work in front of a room full of other trans people? Mm. So when they came to, when they came to uh, Seattle, I had known about them from Twitter. It was actually like, I was trying to get a recommendation for my haircut for a haircut. <laughs> and that's like how I ended up, one of the writers, Casey Platt, wrote to me, and that's how I ended up meeting them all. was th was not through writing, but through wanting a good haircut. And uh, anyway, they came to they came to Seattle, and they were like, "Do you want to read?" And I had written like a little bit of stuff about um, trans things, so I was like, "Okay, I'll go read." And I read something, and as I was reading it. I realized that what I had written, I had never written for and, and read to a room full of other trans people. Mm. And what I had written was like full of shame. Mm. It was, it was really sort of telling, trying to tell, it was like, like me, don't worry, I'm not weird. And cause I had always imagined a cis audience. And when I read that to a room full of trans people, they heard the shame in it they were like, this is somebody who's like not okay with themselves. This is somebody who's embarrassed and who hasn't worked through it. And I could, I could feel it even as I read and I could feel it in the room. And I remember I sat down after that reading and I was like, I, you know, it was hard for me to meet the eyes of people in the audience. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't ever want to feel that way again. And I don't know exactly how not to, but these people seem to be writing things that don't make them feel that way. Mm. And, and I didn't feel that way hearing the other work. And anyway, I ended up falling in with them, you know, and it was like very much an art scene where people were dating and 
well, you know, all the things that happen in like <laughs> art scenes. And uh, but I moved to Brooklyn to become a part of it, and um, and it was it was really mostly ideas that formed Detransition Baby came out of that scene, came out of the idea of like what happens to writing when you're writing for other people who are like you. You know, in what ways does that set the bar higher? Because you have to, you you can't, you can't just tell them the basics. They already are living it. You know, my example is often, um, you can't tell other trans people about hormones because they they inject every week and they're extremely bored with it. So if you want to say something about hormones, you have to bring a much higher quality of insight. Mm. Um, and so that that began, that began to be how I write, how I wrote, and. Although the scene in some ways imploded, many of the writers from that scene are still kind of my peers, are the people I'm writing in conversation with, and they are, you know, a lot of them are, have published books this year. So mm. when people are like, this is the first book, it's kind of like, eh, <laughs> you know, like I understand why that's, that's a useful marketing tool. And a year out from publication where I'm much less concerned with selling books I'm like eh, I don't know <laughs> like mm -hmm. um you know it's the first to get a certain kind of attention but it's it's not the first to 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 it's not the first tr trans book by any stretch it's maybe not even the first trans book to approach things in the ways that I've approached it I have so many questions already. Um, so I know that you went to the University of Iowa. Um, yeah. Was that before you moved to Brooklyn or after? Oh, yeah. So yeah. basically, I went to Iowa, and I sort of was on like a, uh, you know, a kind of typical MFA trajectory, mm -hmm. post-MFA. And I wrote a novel that I thought was quite good, but it it didn't sell. And one of the reasons it didn't sell is that there was like a sort of block in it. Like the, the limitations of the novel were actually the limitations of me as a person mm. and the limitations of me as a person coincided to the fact that I was having all this gender issues that I, that I had was filled with shame and I didn't know how to handle it. And I didn't know how to um, transition in a way that didn't have me lose a lot of things in my life. And finally, you know, the book didn't sell. And I was like, I want to be a writer. I also, you know, want to be happy. And so I needed to transition. And, and I transitioned at a time where, where, you know, the people who were interested in my writing, once I transitioned, were not anymore. Oh, wow. So, um, and that sort of MFA trajectory, like, in 2011, people were interested in maybe, and this is part of the reason why there was this trans scene of trans women writing for each other, is that people were like, well, maybe you should write a memoir. Maybe you should write all this different stuff to explain yourself to us. And, you know, and, and the stuff you actually want to write about, you know, desire and sex and all that stuff, that's a little icky. There's not really an audience for it, you know? Mm. And so I sort of was like, you know, I was like in the wilderness for a while. And then when I found this scene, we weren't part of the publishing industry. Mm -hmm. You know, we were, it's like the publishing industry eventually caught up to what we were doing and came around to us. But we were, you know, I self published my first two novellas and that was 
that was on purpose because it was like, I don't believe that this publishing industry will, you know, now they want, now they're being republished. Um, But at the time it was like, it was like, I don't want to deal with whatever an editor would say to me. I don't want to deal with what an agent would do to try and position the stuff. And frankly, like I know better than any publishing company where trans women live and I can get them the books. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm curious. I I grad. I went to the writers Iowa Writers Workshop uh, for poetry. Yeah. Um, straight from college, which I think protected me a little bit. Are you Are you glad you did it? I mean, it, and and why Why were these people no longer interested in your writing? Well, I don't think it was necessarily the workshop people who weren't, but I do think it was like I had had an agent at the time, mm-hmm. and I had and it was more that. It was more the trajectory that a workshop puts you on and that suddenly I had deviated from that trajectory. The, the workshop itself, you know, I, I still respect a lot of the people who I went, I, I mean, I don't say still, I never st- stopped respecting mm-hmm. them. Um, the people who were in my cohort and um, I'm still, you know, some of them were on parallel journeys with me, like uh, my friend, T. Fleischman, who wrote the book, Time is a Thing That a Body Moves Through, mm. and had written a, uh, a book that was more with the kind of poetic zizzardy beauty before. Mm. You know, we had parallel journeys in terms of gender, and we were, uh, we met at Iowa. Um, and there's other people, too, whose work I, I really respect. I think it was more, though, that Iowa, and while I was at Iowa, I didn't know what writing was for is what I say, right? Like, it was like, this is this is craft. And, and it was sort of the idea. And the idea that you're writing to move people in a, in a real way and that you're writing to connect with them, not in a sort of lofty literary way, but in a, like, hey, you're going to read this. Like, when I read Nevada, it was like, this book could change my life. Like, this book is going to change how I live. It's going to, I'm going to move across the country to be near these people who think this way. And I need this book, not because I like want to know how words are put together well, but because the words communicated something that I needed so urgently about how to live. Mm-hmm. And a workshop where you just get people from all sorts of different walks of life, most of whom aren't familiar with your own walk of life like they're not going to recognize what's urgent in in something you know they would have looked at a book like Nevada and they're like that's a very unsatisfying ending and you know in a craft way it is it just sort of just ends that book um and in a sort of like oh is this a description of my life right now of like stuckness of like all these things like it was it was a very powerful even though it wasn't like perfect in a literary way Mm -hmm. and that would have I don't think that would have been recognized in a workshop and so I came to write to sort of get praise in a workshop setting where they're like good sentence nice image you know and um it was it was afterwards outside of sort of a publishing establishment where it was like why am I writing I'm writing to move people and I, those novellas, they're full of typos, mm-hmm. you know? And people will sometimes write to me and be like, these books are full of typos. And, and I'm like, yeah, I don't care. Like, because 
you don't, the idea that you need like an immaculate page in order to move somebody, that's like a form of like subtle gatekeeping. And it, it's like, who do you have to go to a workshop? Do you have to have an editor? Do you have to do all these things? It's like, no, you can just write a story. It can, you know, you can misspell embarrass like things that are, I misspelled things that are kind of embarrassing to me. I'm not going to cite them all here. I was about to, and I was like, yeah, I'm not going to call myself out that much, but, but, um, but that was part of it. It was part of it that, that the people who picked up those books, the, the vast majority of them didn't care. They yeah. were looking to be moved. And, um, that wasn't something that I think a workshop was able to teach me. Yeah. But your book absolutely moved me. Um, and, and I want to say two things real quick about it. And then I'm hoping you'll give us the synopsis that you have probably yeah. gotten very sick of yeah. giving, but you know, I'd rather have you do it because I'm more likely to give things away. <laughs> um, but you know, first of all, I, I, I really forgot how to read over the pandemic. Uh Um, and even though I'm a poet and I teach poetry and, um, but I especially had trouble reading poetry, um, Mm -hmm. over the pandemic. Um, I, I'm not exactly sure why, but your novel was, I mean, it's first of all, incredibly readable and exciting and page turning and, I, I was just, it was my, it was a return to pleasure for me, like real deep pleasure. I was like, oh, I love reading. Oh, I forgot. I love reading. Um, but the other thing, and we're going to talk about yeah. this after you give the synopsis, is that um, I, I felt like the book was written for me. I, I'm in the midst of figuring out some you know, for me, very powerful, urgent questions at I'm about to turn 50, Mm. you know, about gender and about my gender identity and about my sexuality and about uh, my body and about all these things. And Darcy Steinke was on Commonplace, you know, I don't know, a year or so more ago, but she has this fantastic kind of like memoir slash nonfiction book called flash count diary mm-hmm. and it's about menopause and one of the things that we talked about was the debt that she feels to trans writers who have like really spoken about hormones and um, aging and bodies in ways that cis women have not really explored in terms of menopause mm-hmm. um, and that there's very little to no information about that. And that, that when she was going through menopause, she really turned primarily to the memoirs of trans writers to think about what was happening yeah. in her body. So it, it wasn't like, uh, and, and absolutely my experience, my personal experience with my friends who are trans has been enormously yeah. like informing. So it wasn't like the, I thought, oh, this has nothing to do with me. I was interested from right. the beginning, but deep into the novel, I mean, not deep into the novel, I, I was like, oh my, and I felt very selfish about yeah. this and very inappropriate 
Um, and it's so funny that I did not read the dedication uh, until the end after I had already gone through so much guilt about like feeling like I kind of feel like this book is for me. It was. Um, I know. <laughs> so anyway, g- give a yeah. synopsis um, of the book so that b- people know what we're talking about or it doesn't have yeah. to be a synopsis, whatever you want sure. people to know. I mean, my like elevator pitch is that it's, uh, let's see if I can do this in two sentences, is that it's a story of uh, a woman named Reese who you can think of as sort of like Fleabag, but trans and in Brooklyn. She's in kind of a mess. And the action kicks off when her ex, Ames, who used to be a trans woman named Amy, but detransitioned, gets his boss, Katrina, pregnant and reapproaches Reese, who had always wanted a baby, to say do you want to like get together with the two of us and form this unconventional family? And that's, that's actually just the first chapter. Like it's, that's the premise. And then, um, and then from there sort of, it just escalates. But yeah, the, so that's, that's my, that's my two sentence version of it. Right. And it's, and, um, the form is, you know, it moves around chronologically, the way that you get to know kind of the backstory of, of each of the characters. Um, but then, you know, the, the incredible pleasure of, um, you know, on the one hand, it really does follow a chiclet kind of formula. It is pleasurable on that level. It is also extremely literary in terms of its form, its terms of its, um, you know, its character development, its writing, you know, all of those things. No, no typos in the whole book. Yeah, I mean, did I, not find I, a single typo. There's a few. I'll, I'll tell you. <laughs> I didn't find um, so anyway, why as a cis woman, you know, reading this book, did I feel like this book was for me? Uh, you know, first of all, the dedication, which I'll ask you to yeah. talk about in a minute, but also there is this moment in the book where Reese basically says, I feel understood by divorced cis women because they've had to reconsider their relationship to the patriarchy, their relationship to uh, the, the safety and respectability afforded to them by marriage, um, by heterosexual marriage in particular. And, you know, who are you now? What are you? Mm-hmm. Where are you? Do you belong to someone? Do you belong to yourself? Like, how do people see you? Um, and, you know, I, I, I felt that getting divorced, which has been the central drama of my life for the past two years, but mm-hmm. really much before that, because the marriage was you know, how much do I hold on to this? Um, you know, for years to me, it wasn't just a matter of like getting divorced. It was really like, it was about becoming a different person or, or, or becoming the per or being able to live in the world as the person that I always was yes that I was not able to do and be in the heterosexual marriage that I was in yeah um 
for me, there also were uh, two health crises that that yeah. precipitated this. So, I had a very unwanted. I like spent about three months nearly bleeding to death, and then had an emergency hysterectomy that I didn't want, and that was when I was still married. Right. Um, and all of this weird shit around that of like, yeah. do you need your uterus to feel like a woman? Yeah, like. R- what what yeah. is ha- what is going on here um with these medical providers and like you know what what my uterus means to other people what it means to me right. um you know not having it uh anymore um you know being uh, of the age where i am invisible yeah. like just invisible um in this really kind of interesting and freeing way and all sorts of other stuff. Anyway, um, I felt like it was and is still very much a a transformative experience that I don't hear talked about in ways other than like, you know, the first wives club or, you know, whatever. So, but can you like from your side, why did you dedicate well, can I read the yeah, dedication? Please. Do you have a copy? Like, please. I love that you have a copy of my book. I'm like, where's mine? <laughs> We're in my apartment. Um, uh, so the book is dedicated to divorced cis women who, like me, had to face starting their life over without either reinvesting in the illusions from the past or growing bitter about the future. And the reason I dedicated it to divorced cis women was... Um, I mean, for many of the reasons you just discussed, um, but there's partly it's it's that I was in my mid thirties and I was looking around for models for like models for a longer life, and I kept on reading these books by it wasn't always divorce, but it was women circling a rupture at some point in their life. You know, I'm always cite the the. Ferrante's Neapolitan Mm -hmm. novels which was just like I mean she's constantly having these ruptures in her life and then I read Rachel Cusk's outline trilogy and the her memoir about divorce I read um Jenny Offal's book I just read a a lot of books about basically women in their 30s and 40s having these ruptures and 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 I was like the way that they were framing their questions felt like a way that I could frame questions about my own life. Mm -hmm. And so there was a way in which I learned how to be a woman in my late thirties, um, you know, going into my forties from these divorces women Mm -hmm. where I was like, this is, these are the books that, that can teach me. And then I was also like, I have something to say back to these women you know, I think that I don't know if they considered me when when they I don't think they did consider me when they were writing. But I was like, I actually want to be part of this conversation. I want to like say have like a trans iteration on this. And similar to what what you said, I think there's ways in which bringing a trans lens to the cis experience Trans people have a way of seeing things. We've developed a language. We've developed a, a sort of vocabulary around gender, around um, both its performance, the way that other people, you know, interact with it. And there were lots of times in these books where I was like, if I wish 
I wish, I mean, Ferrante would be, I don't really tell Ferrante what to do, but I, I wish <laughs> that, you know, in some ways that some of these women would have picked up some of these tools and that yeah. it would be like, this is a way out. Like this is actually, we're not others, you know, that's, uh, this, these are, and there's this way I think of, of talking nowadays of sort of like stay in your lane, like the way that you were like, oh, I, I don't know if I get to feel that this book is for me. Well, I don't, I don't think that those, those women were worried about whether or not the book was, they weren't like, oh, I, this book isn't for trans women. And I, and I, and similarly, I felt like that I'm not worried about don't, pick up my book if you're somebody else. It's like, yes, actually, I'm interested in speaking across difference. I'm interested in the analogies and the resonances. And I'm interested in what happens when, like, I'm able to take the good things from their book, apply them to my life. And if it can be like an actual conversation where I speak back and where these resonances come into play for divorce women. So, um, and I think that that's, that's what's interesting to me about this moment isn't that, oh, there's, you know, it's actually counter to a lot of the ways that trans books get talked about now. They're like, oh, you read a trans book to educate yourself about the other. When I when I'm kind of like, read a trans book to educate you about yourself. Yeah. And and you'll not only that that'll be a deeper reading experience because I'm reading books primarily to to learn about myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually reading across difference or across analogy, which is in a little way out of uh, maybe slightly out of vogue but it but it is actually i think such a powerful reading experience when it when it feels like it can be done yeah I, so so let's stay with that for a second because this is this is one of the things that i'm really interested in and struggling with like so on the one hand you know the characters in the book two of them or several of them happen to be trans but they're you know I, I identify most strongly with Reese. Uh Um, And I think in part, and I was talking about this with a cis friend of mine who is a mom also. And, you know, I was like, okay, so who, you know, we both read the book. I was like, who do you identify with more? And, you know, of course I identify with Katrina. um, You know, but I, I, the thing that I feel in a way is most a part of my identity even before puberty was wanting to be a mother. Yeah. And, um, and so it's, it's just fascinating for me to, to think about the ways in which that is such a central part of, of, who I was before I became a mother and after, and even now that my children are, you know, on their way to adulthood and it's not like I'm carrying a baby around all the time. Um, and you know, I've never really heard anybody say or like really write about like, well, maybe motherhood or mother is a sexual identity or a gender identity or a sexual orientation like that's those are weird ideas um so and and this idea of the trans lens or a trans lens or a queer lens or you know is so important to me and so valuable and at the same time 
there's this really important moment in the book where basically Reese says to Katrina or emails Katrina uh, and gets very frustrated with Katrina um, and says like, yeah, you're kind of want to live in, you want to make a queer family with me and with Ames, but you're using us as a metaphor almost. You're, mm-hmm. you're not, you don't, you're, you can go back to your, you know, cis het life. Um, and you don't have the same risk that we do. You don't have the same experience. You don't come from the same lived experience that I do. And so I, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in how we can create solidarity and, and less guilt around, uh, you know, employing, enjoying, exploring yeah. a trans lens if someone is cis, but also recognizing like it's fucked up to use somebody else's life as a metaphor. Someone else's life is someone else's life. Um, a character in a book, okay. Yeah. But I think that there's a lot of discomfort right around the edge of that, right? Like, you know, of 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 making sure to recognize like this is where the metaphor ends yeah. and where, you know, the reality of privilege and, uh, you know, all these things really have to be recognized. Um, you know, I, I always think about like, you know, Susan Sontag's you yeah. know, illness as metaphor. Like, yeah, you don't, you don't, you don't want to be somebody else's metaphor. Yeah. yeah. I, I agree with that. I think though that there's like, you know, metaphors are interesting because oftentimes they confuse epistemologies, right? Mm-hmm. And that that's kind of why they're amazing, but also why they can be problems. And that, you know, th- there's a way in which the the epistemology in which I think people are like, don't take my life, is a is a fundamentally for me i'll just speak for myself and so it's a it's a material one right that like if somebody is saying that they're living their life uh as a trans woman and then they're getting opportunities they're getting they're speaking on my behalf in real ways that tends to be where i'm like whoa you're not really a trans woman you don't really you know you're you're getting some sort of material gain from identifying with a trans woman and and that material gain should probably go to the trans woman who actually need it. Mm-hmm. That feels very different to me than a sort of non, you know, that like there's a material epistemology, there's a political epistemology, and then there's a sort of like more fluffier artistic one in which we understand each other oftentimes across difference or through empathy and all these different things. And there's so much aligning of those epistemologies in the way in with, even in the way that Reese, you know, that that thing that Reese did, she's right on one hand, and on the other hand, it was incredibly immature of her. It was it was, um, you know, I don't think that Reese behaved correctly. I don't think any of the. I mean, nobody in the book behaves correctly all the time, or most of the time. Um, but um, you know, I think part of the reason we read fiction, the way we do this, is that fiction is a place where you get to like sort of 
allied and move between epistemologies. And the things were like, if I was doing a think piece, I would actually have to be rigid in my epistemology. And I would say like, I'm doing a political piece. Don't speak on behalf of somebody else. But, you know, I, I a little bit, I a little bit disagree with, 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 uh, sort of on its face. I think that Sontag gets into a lot of the nuances of it, but the idea of like, you know, can illness be metaphor or is that like appropriating somebody else's pain? Well, to some degree, yes. And if you're, if that, if that's causing material harm, sure, don't do it. But if we're trying to like understand our experience in a non-alienated, non-totally isolated way, you know, to, at some point you're going to have to broach this and you're going to have to navigate it with other people. And I think we've, we're, I think at a place where we've pushed the idea of you cannot, you cannot metaf- make a metaphor or analogy out of somebody's life to a, to a, to a place where it's, it's like damaging to my soul mm-hmm. rather than, you know, a, and you get a thing where like, my readers that I that I that I understand the least are the ones who are who oftentimes for political reasons that are well intentioned are not able to make the empathetic leap to into my experience largely because they think they're not entitled to, right? Huh. And so and so they end up reading for education or or in this thing where like I remain completely an other, even though I'm inviting them to empathize with me where they're like politically I can't empathize with you and I'm like no if you empathize with me you are not taking bread off my table mm-hmm. you are just trying to understand me like let's be careful in our in in what way in in what epistemology we're working and what are the causations and and be be a little sh- like more parse a little bit more the ways in which what is a metaphor? What is what is material? Mm-hmm. And um, and 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 that's you know in the same way that I'm not worried when I read Ferrante that I'm like, well, I'm not really a working class Italian girl in the <laughs> 1950s. Like, is this book really for me? All across the world, people are reading Ferrante and saying, oh my God, this book s- speaks directly to my soul. Yeah. And why should Ferrante have that? You know why she gets to write on a canvas where she gets to assume that people will do that. I too want to write on a canvas where I assume people will be like, "This speaks directly to my experience and my soul." Where there's not an artificial kind of thing where, like, "Oh, am I going to get called out on Twitter if I say this?" I love what you just said, and I think that this is this question of imaginative empathy and the the uh, people should be anxious about appropriation yeah um but that you know um oh if we become so anxious about appropriation there's no more fiction yeah at all yeah and that i think is a a world I don't want to even really imagine for, for very real, uh, reasons. Yeah. Uh, not just like, Oh, it would be sad. Um, I think, I think the ability, you know, this is, this is like in some ways super old school, but like the ability to imagine yourself as somebody that you're not, 
um, or identify with aspects of another person or another story or put yourself into a narrative or imagine that your life could take a different turn. Um, I don't know how to live without that. I don't know how anybody grows up. I don't know how anybody makes loves anyone else. Like, how do you even imagine what your lover or partner or friend's interior life is if you can't have imaginative empathy? Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think the thing is that a lot of these things have, like, come to stand in for judgment, mm-hmm. like, for or, or critical judgment. Mm-hmm. What I mean is, like, so, I mean, I'm, like, and it's, like, it's funny because I almost feel afraid to say this. Like, one of the best trans stories that I read this year, or I'm in the process of listening to it on, on audiobook, um, one of the best trans stories that I read this year is not by a trans woman and so so much of this is like you know there's a thing where you say well even in terms of my epistemology is like well should who should win who should win the award for best trans whatever Mm. and then you're like well we should probably give that to a trans woman because you know trans women haven't gotten to tell their own stories and a big piece of me believes that that's true like mm-hmm. when you go through a thing it's like best trans book i really think that um it should be trans writers doing it and yet i read this book by robbie almadine the wrong under the telescope and my like artistic judgment is that this is an excellent book and this is a book that this it's it's the it's just written, uh, you know, from the perspective of a trans woman who's a doctor who goes to deal with the refugee crisis uh, on the island of Lesbos. Uh, she's coming home to Lebanon for the first time in, in a long time. Mm. And it's this, like, incredible story of refugees, an incredible story of gender. It's doing all these things that I, li- I think the best trans stories do. And it's not, you know, it's not by a trans woman. It's by a gay Lebanese American. Mm. And Zoe Whittall um, has written really, I mean, I'm not a trans man, but um, Zoe Whittall has written trans men characters that a lot of trans men are like, this, these are good characters. Mm-hmm. And so there's this thing where it's like, are, you know, can I say that uh, one of the best trans narratives this year is, is written by a cis person? Mm. Or... And if I do, is that going to encourage people to go give prizes to cis people? And and then what I say to myself is like, actually, those are two separate things, right? And that like the fact that writing, like that the artistic creation immediately gets turned into like, what kind of you know how much how much money you have in your bank account, is it's like at what point do I sever those? And so what I think is really important is to make sure that trans women aren't starving, that trans women have the same opportunities. And then once trans women have those opportunities, it's good for cis writers because then cis writers can write as many books about trans women as they want. Mm-hmm. You know, if if, it, if if trans women have have all the prizes that they've deserved over those years, and then now one go, then now one goes to a cis man, I don't care. The problem, and that tends to be how I think about this question is like, what's happening inside of the text and what's happening outside of the text. Mm-hmm. And I have this with my own sort of ways that I manage, you know, I don't always do it perfectly, but how I manage writing people who are not like me. And it, it requires 
the, an equal amount of care and concern and knowledge. And if you can't pull it off, don't do it. Um, and so oftentimes I won't do it because I know I can't pull it off. But it's a different care than happens outside of the text. And um, But I, I do see them getting conflated a lot. Yeah. Um, and then there's this other... Well, I think it's part of exactly what you're mm-hmm. saying. Um, I was going to ask you if you would read from the book. And V requested basically the scene where Reese is in the hospital and trying to explain what happened. But the re- I asked V, like, why did you choose that scene? And um, V said, well, I feel like it's really, really funny. And um, it's 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 sort of like darkly comedic in a way that only a trans woman could have written. And so that's an interesting phrase right there. Like it's interesting based on what you're saying, right? Like what what does that mean? I mean, a year ago I would have agreed with that. Mm-hmm. And like you know, just kind of speaking to what I what I said before, like um, I think I, my position is something closer to like Alexander Cheese, which is like you can write it, but you it's going to be you're, it's an uphill thing and you're going to have to try really hard but then sometimes people do mm-hmm. you know and so and in part i think when we talk about like i think that this also gets into a thing which like i don't think gender and race are totally comparable mm-hmm. in this way i think that you know fundamentally my experience is not of a of a black person's experience but i'm not sure that trans, that the border between trans and cis is so hard as that. Like when you talk about, okay, you had a hysterectomy and suddenly we're trying to define womanhood. And and so you're like, well, is womanhood, is it genitalia? Is it, is it hormones? Is it the ability to reproduce? Well, on the ability to reproduce, you and I are in one camp that's different than many other women's camps. And so suddenly like you know the ways in which gender is just like this yeah performative iteration um means that we all kind of are in this fuzzy place with that and and for that reason specifically on like the sort of um tranche of of gender i'm kind of like i i i'm into cis people weighing in on this mm-hmm. because I think the world would be better if they did. I think their lives would be better if they did. And I think that actually my life might be might be better if cis people had some of these tools. I don't know if it means that if they did, we would end up being the same. But I think that it's like an interesting and productive thing, which is a place that I arrived to that's very different than where I began, which was like from a much more trans-separatist position. Like... Mm. Um, and when I was doing that, like trans women writing for trans women, it was a trend, it was a separatist impulse. And I think that I've come to basically be like, um, no, I I don't necessarily feel that same separatism that I once did, but I do think that, you know, cis people have a lot to, to pick up from, from trans people. Um, so that's sort of an aside on just some how how 
what other you're talking about and along what vector changes even these questions. Um, but, but that said, you know, I, I, let's, let me see what the passage actually is. To see okay. if I, I even agree with myself once I've read the passage. Okay. I mean, and I'm definitely going to want to also ask you, and you can answer this first or after, yeah. but what changed? Like what, was there an event? Was there, was it, partly the reception of the book? I think it was actually, um, it, was, it wasn't the reception of the book. It was writing the book mm. in a lot of ways and sort of my own thing. Like, so, for instance, the, the Glamour Boutique section mm. is a lot about dissociation. And I used to think of dissociation as this like very, very specifically trans experience, that there was a, a, a real specific valence to the ways that trans women dissociate because it's sort of like in order to have sex you have to kind of put do all this mental machinery to get around the ways that that you think a woman should be having sex and the way you're actually having sex and so there's this this distance between those two things and that there was a, something very specifically trans about that experience and and then, famously, I mean, there was a bunch of different things I could cite, but but the most well known is the cat person story came out. I wrote Glamour Boutique section, and about eight months later, cat person came out, and it coincided with the sort of the launch of the Me Too thing. And I recognized that the sex that was being described in Cat Person was dissociative sex in the exact same way that so many trans women I knew were having sex. And so I was like writing this piece that I thought was like, this is the literature of trans association and it's a really specifically trans experience. This is, you know, you know, other people can learn about themselves through this thing that they'll never experience. And then realizing like, Oh, that was pretty myopic of me to think that this dissociation, that, that, that as a trans woman, I have to make a difference between how I think my body is and how it is should, how it is idealized. That like, of course, cis women do this, and but what trans people have is they have developed a language to describe it. That can, and I'm sort of like I didn't recognize that cis people weren't doing this because they weren't speaking about it in the same language that was legible to me, or they were in some ways not inventing a language around it. Mm -hmm. And so then I was like, oh, so my work isn't to say this, here's a special experience. It's to basically be like, I've come up with this language. I hope other people take it. Mm. And the more I've begun to sort of, and we talked about mother as a, as a, as maybe a gender, mm -hmm. you know, I've been thinking about aims and why and people have asked me a lot about aims, not wanting to aims being okay with living as a man, but that father is somehow a problem. Mm-hmm. And I think that the way that Ames had a problem with that is like really father as a gender was mm -hmm. the issue, not father as a role or a function where, you know, Ames could raise a kid. Yep. What Ames couldn't do is be like, Hey son, here's a baseball mitt. Like, let's go like, like, you know, if a bully hits you, punch him in the face or whatever it is that the, that the father gender is. And that's what horrified Ames. When confronted with the idea of being a father, what Ames felt was a gender dysphoria. Mm. And for me, like, I actually think there's a lot of men out there who feel things like that 
and have no language, much more than women. Yes. You know, there are men who don't have language for part, for separating roles, functions, and like sort of genders outside of like a binary. Um, the father in a lot of ways becomes a gender that then becomes rigid and that, and, and in order to do the role, you also have to do the gender because you don't have the language to separate the role and the gender. Um, these are things that, that I once, the, I thought were trans because I heard trans people talking about them and I didn't hear like fathers talking about them in these specific terms. So I was like, oh, it must be a trans thing. And now I'm much more like, no, this is actually, we all have gender. We're all just kind of figuring it out. And, and trans people have this very specific experience that's like really visible and really legible that sort of reveals what everybody else is also doing, you know? And, and that's like the funny thing about things like the way that, that like psychologists for years um, sort of pathologized trans women is, is they pathologized, they revealed their own sexuality by pathologizing trans women. Like, oh, you're turned on by your, by your gender. Well, actually everybody's turned on by their gender. It's just, you didn't notice it until you pathologized it for a trans woman. <laughs> so yeah, anyway, uh, that's, that's sort of, the writing of it and like the fact that when you're in a novel, you have to live in it for so long and you have to like reassess this stuff and you have to re you have to, you know, I could have just written that glamour boutique and been like, I'm done. But then I had to like return to it two years later and be like, this doesn't feel right. And then be like, Oh, I was wrong. Mm -hmm. You know? And, and the time it's like the difference between a tweet and a novel is that you have to like sit with it over a course of five years and discover all the ways that your novels incorrect. Yeah, I'm, I'm. Nobody can see me, but I've the entire time you're you're talking, I'm just like grinning this like <laughs> stupid grin and like nodding my head up and down because these are the conversations that I've been having around your book um, with my cis friends and my trans friends, and you know, it, it and the and it's the same conversation that's coming up over and over again, whether we're talking about, you know, Reese's relationship to violence, um, mm. or the, or the, you know, the way violence intersects with, um, her sexuality yeah. and her, and her sexual experiences or whether it's, which is also straight out of Sylvia Plath, you know, I mean, that's the and that's the thing is like when a trans woman does it, it's dangerous, but when Sylvia Plath does it, it's classic literature. Well, this is, this is, ex yeah. this is literally, this is exactly, it, it actually was, it got kind of heated um, yeah. between me and one of my friends where, um, you know, I think it came out of a good intention, but was ultimately a kind of pathologizing of Reese of like, you know, I'm worried about her, mm -hmm. you know, does, she deserves more, she deserves better. And I understand, you know, where that's coming from. My feeling was like, wait, don't we all yeah. do this? Like, I'm sorry. Yeah. Wait, do, are, are we not talking about the, masculinity yeah like do we already learned yeah. like the sex and power thing like oh now we forgot it when we're talking you know or this this um dissociation or right. yeah the what you're saying about um 
not having the language for it and then having the language for it and accessing the language and the stories um, through characters as opposed to, you know, the DSM or mm. medical texts or sociology or anthropology, all of which are very helpful in a lot of ways, um, and yet not... Um, you can't be inside that. You can't, you, or I guess it has felt to me as a cis person who never really identified very strongly with gender in mm -hmm. the ways that I was supposed to. Um, I mean, I, I spent years of my life saying I never was a girl. That was yeah. never, I, I did not have a girlhood. I only identified or I, I was interested in, I was never interested in femininity. I was just interested in whatever my idea of the maternal was, right. which is totally not the same thing. No. So the Wim Hof section. Yeah. So there's the, there's three, the 321 is Reese Beach. Are you talking about when she goes into the water or when she comes out of the water? When she comes out and she's, as V said, what did V say? Her one. You know, I, I I don't know if if they meant only a trans woman would have the courage to write this scene in this yeah. way, in terms of sort of playing with tropes of trans suicide and like making that funny, um, yeah. or whether it was also only a trans woman would know how to really make this funny to another trans woman because to go back to what you were saying in the beginning it raises the bar when you're speaking to an audience that that knows what you know um i so yes it was the it was when she, when she's in the hospital and ex trying oh, to... 329. Yeah. I mean, maybe I'll just read some, some little bits of it because actually the part that I think is the funniest trans joke around suicide is that Reese has walked into the water to, at Reese Beach um, to, do the, to cleanse her grief through the Wim Hof method. Mm-hmm. And then people assume that a trans woman walking into freezing water is, you know, some sort of self-harm. So then afterwards, the paramedics come, and uh, I'll just read what happens. So um, the lifeguards haven't come out haven't yet come out for the season, but somebody who witnessed Reese's submersion has called an ambulance and reported an incident of self-harm. What is happening? The newly arrived beachgoers ask each other as the ambulance lights flash at the end of the boardwalk. The rumor goes around. Another trans woman has tried to commit suicide. They nod sadly, knowingly. Isn't this the kind of perfor performance just what trans women do? Throw themselves in front of a train from crowded platforms, film themselves downing fistfuls of pills on Facebook Live, broadcast and perform their pain no matter whom it triggers. Don't even trans women expect this from each other? And I'll kind of skip ahead. 
Reese has denied her swim was a suicide attempt, but she's regained her wits enough to know better than to shout Wim Hof method at paramedics responding to the supposed mental health crisis. It was a polar bear swim, she tells them. <laughs> One of the guys interviews Talia then comes back. She says, she, she says you've lost a baby, he, reforms, he informs Reese, that you've been upset about it. Does that have anything to do with what happened? How dense are these guys? Would they remind a grieving mother of her lost child? Besides, her clothes are still down at the beach. She's sitting there untucked in a one-piece. I'm trans. Duh, she snapped. I can't have a baby. The men exchange glances, and Reese understands she has miscalculated. Transness is not the most direct route to non-suicidal credibility. The guy who interviewed Talia has also asked some other people what happened, and everyone has described the same scene. A woman walking soberly and purposely into a sea of lethal cold, refusing to turn back no matter what they shouted. Reese lets out a little derisive laugh. Who did they think she was to wear a bathing suit for that? Did they think that she had no sense of theater or gravitas? Can you imagine Virginia Woolf being so undignified as to put on a bathing costume to walk her intolerable despair into the river? If she wants to be taken seriously when she walks tragically into the sea, she needs a big skirt weighed down with stones, not a polyester one-piece. Yeah, I mean, it's just so great, too. I mean, the way that it, uh, you know, I couldn't help but obviously think about the awakening and... And, and like see this very different, you know, like that's all anybody from the shore could see was, mm -hmm. and, and, and by see, I mean, imagine right. also like, oh, it's a woman walking into the sea, you know, and I love the way sort of everything comes together to turn all of these expectations on this uh, upside down. And, and Reese has already been to a trans funeral earlier in the book, so it's mm -hmm. set up that like these people aren't unreasonable for thinking right. that it's a trans woman who committed suicide. Trans, there's an epidemic of suicide among trans women, and yet she's just... And she is grieving. It's just, you know, the difference between what you expect of a trans woman and what actually may be going on in her particular individual, you know weird life where she's doing the Wim Hof method, you know, and that's, that's, I mean, that's basically the lives of most trans women I, I know is that there's the, the ways in which we are constantly conforming to the stereotype. And then in a crucial moment, we deviate from it, you know? Um, and there's, for me, you're around it enough and it starts, it stops being sort of like, it just starts being hilarious. You know, I, I have like a funny story that, um, one of my friends had um, had surgery, a trans surgery recently, and um, there was the whole Dave Chappelle thing, and so she, she's recovering from surgery, and she's using her mom's Netflix account to watch, and because she just you know is at home all day recovering, and her mom sends her a message and is like, "Don't worry, in solidarity." I've canceled, you know, against Dave Chappelle, I've canceled Netflix. <laughs> and she's like, what the fuck, mom? That's like what I've been watching to recover from surgery. And I just think it's like hilarious that like in solidarity with my trans daughter recovering from a trans surgery, I will cancel her television subscription. You know, the difference between like what you think that the whole media is telling you, like cancel Netflix in solidarity and like the actual lives, which is like, I'm just trying to watch like, I don't know, 
like like 30 rock or whatever it is that they're watching you know uh emily in paris who knows you know and and like live my little life (laughs) so i don't know why this question is coming to me right now particularly like right at this moment when you just told me that story and if you don't want to answer it just be like yeah um so you recently got married i did and having just recently gotten divorced, I certainly have been saying to anyone who cares to listen, I will never get yeah. married again. I don't want, and not only that, but like, I just want to have, I want to move away from institutions of all kinds as much as I can. So congratulations. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and why? Why did you, I mean, I've, I got divorced too when I when I transitioned and I didn't think I'd get married again. And um this time around it 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 you know I used to say that the institution was like stronger than any two people that mm. no matter what you did um you know my story for this is is like when I was first married you know the first time I went out without without my wife um people were like it's before I transitioned, so it was a heterosexual uh, marriage. The people were like, "Hey, where's your wife?" And I was like, "Listen, that's not what we do in this marriage. I don't, I don't keep tabs on my wife." And then, you know, the tenth time I, I, and I did a whole speech, but like the tenth time I got tired of doing the speech, so I was like, "Yeah, I don't know where she is." <laughs> and then, like the hundredth time, I was like, "Yeah, where is she?" You know, <laughs> and um, and that the institution pushes you into this sort of thing, and. Uh, I think that that is, so I was very much like the institution's stronger than any two people, and so you can't can't be part of the institution. And I think that's true if you basically care about the institution. Mm-hmm. And it's not even that I dislike the institution anymore, or that I. It's like it's like marriage is just it's just a word that describes my life, and in some ways, it's like so I. <laughs> I've like basically for reasons of of um, just I can't ha- like digest it very well anymore. I stopped drinking over a pandemic, mm. and I, I haven't been able been able to drink in a, uh, in a while. And so people invite me to parties, and they're like, "Do you want to go out? Do you want to get wild and stuff like that?" And and for a long time, it was really hard to basically be like that's just not who I am anymore. Mm. Like that's, and then, and, and then I was like, I was in a relationship that was like, you know, like basically a marriage, but I was like having to do all this work to basically be like, no, like this is my new lifestyle or whatever. And then I was like, actually the word for the lifestyle that I'm living is married. Mm. Like married is married. Isn't an institution. It's an apt description of how I'm living. Like, Mm. I don't want to go to your party and get drunk until four in the morning and be hung over the next day because I'm married and mm. I want to spend it with this person I love and I want to wake up and like go for a, wa- a walk and like have a croissant. And there are other words to describe what I want, but the, the one that people understand mm. and that like is immediately effective is marriage. And I, and uh, so like, I basically, I think of marriage as, yes, a commitment between she and I that we already had whether or not we were married, 
but that also mar- marriage rather than being in it's you know we didn't have there was nobody nobody married us like mm. there was no we went to the courthouse during the pandemic and filled out a, a sheet of paper but you know there was no authority in it there we didn't do it in front of anybody we didn't mm. pledge to anybody else like if we if we break up be disappointed in us or something and so and for a long time i was very nervous of telling people because i was like not, then the institution will exert its power but when i just basically was like this is just a word that is a lifestyle description mm. rather than a than an institution with like i don't ascri- i am married i don't but i think that that is just a description that's just a, a a description rather than uh, an adherence to to anything outside of language Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and there are benefits that the state, you know, offers, which some of which I took largely because of, um, you know, she has a 12 year old mm-hmm. and that if I, if, if something happened to her, I feel, I feel simply a, um, in the way that people recognize the language of marriage and more like, okay, we're not going to like tell Tori to go, you know, do Molly on a Tuesday, <laughs> they're like they're also like if i'm like that i'm i'm a stepmom mm-hmm. you know i'm married then then if something happened to gray i would get to go to the hospital yeah and and that's something that that's a responsibility that i think i have that's that's different than um performance yeah yeah i think that's really that's really interesting and i'm i i, I need to think about that I think for me the two were just synonymous in ways that were not that didn't allow me to live yeah um but yeah what are you working on now um I've been doing I mean I've been doing a lot of screenplays just because it's like it was exciting like people came around and I wrote the book and suddenly people were like do you want a tv show and I was like well yeah, I do. so what's what's happening? When is it coming out? Uh, well, it's not. I mean, one of the things I've learned is that this process is like, like w- w- whether you can consi- what you consider to be making a TV show officially is like a moving target. It is, <laughs> you know, my the sh- the show has been bought, has been optioned. It is. Um, I am writing it. I'm being paid to write it, and. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's like things have happened, but I'm learning that like at any point, you know, it could, it's, it could stop. And mm-hmm. that like this idea of sort of like, a, you know, when I was out, when I was outside of this process, I heard like greenlit, it's good. It's, we'll see it next year. And, um, I, I don't know if that's the case. I mean, I, I mean, it may, especially like in the sort of era of streaming and things like that, where, where I think the rules are really weird. So I'm, I'm hoping that it starts filming next spring or summer, Mm. but it is, you know, no one's, no one's turned yet turned on a camera. So it, it could happen or not happen depending on the vagaries of how, how this, how this whole industry works, which is why I'm happy that I'm finally like, starting a new prose project because at least that 
if I sit down and write it every day, eventually it will be a book. Mm. Um, whereas you could sit and write a screenplay every day and it doesn't mean that's going to be a movie. Yeah. Uh, is it another novel? Do it's you another know novel, uh-huh. yeah. So it's I'm calling it a queer financial thriller, Ooh. Um, which are not words that often go together, but I'm interested in... I actually think that one of the, like the taboos in queer culture that isn't often talked about is the way is money mm-hmm. and the ways that like different queers have vastly different amounts of money and it totally changes their relationship to many things like sexuality and things like I mean I was I was just talking um about the Forster novel Maurice and mm-hmm. how um how the relationships in that novel are so classed you mm-hmm. know and it's not even addressed and in my own sort of milieu, we're, I think we're not very good at talking about money. And so yeah. it ends up being like everybody's like posing as a communist, whether you have like a trust fund or whether you, and everybody's acting like they're, and like, and meanwhile, like nobody wants, nobody wants power, the kind of power that actually, you know, makes for effective change because the second you have power, then you are, you know, especially barring a revolution, the ways that power comes is through money and then suddenly you're implicated in all these different ways for exerting money through power. And yet that's how it has to happen. Not has to happen, but it's how how one affects change in this particular moment. You know, again, barring a, a revolution. Uh, and because everybody's uncomfortable with that, we all, you know, sit around and pretending like we're you know, calling each other comrade or whatever. Right. And, um, and, and then you have people just like, sort of like randomly, I feel like there's been a resurgence of people reading Nietzsche for, for the sort of like, you know, genealogy of morality to be like, uh, how do we get power or whatever without, you know, guilt and, and all these different things. And, um, and I just think the whole thing's like rife for kind of a genre thriller, like, in the big short style yeah. financial gamesmanship. Awesome. Yeah. So we'll see. I mean, we'll see if I can pull it off, but that's the, that's the plan. Oh my God. I can't wait. Yeah. So, uh, it's, it's, I'm going to, I'm going to live in Columbia this winter. Huh. And, uh, cause my, my, my wife is, um, she's writing a book too and she's she's on sabbatical so she's gonna get together and i'm just gonna go move in with her and hopefully write it awesome yeah i'm really excited oh my goodness um any any questions that i didn't ask you that you hoped that i would or any questions for me i i i got so excited to hear what you're working on that i just literally stopped thinking no, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, I feel like I'm in this place in the press cycle where like, you know, this is my first book to come out in this particular way and, and early, you know, the first sort of, and there's been like different tales of the cycle mm-hmm. and that now I feel like basically I, I don't feel like I have to sell the book anymore. Mm. Um, like early on. And I think I, I, I 
in future books I may feel it less too. Mm -hmm. But early on, you know, especially when there was like attention on me because of prizes, the women's prize and things like that, mm -hmm. I felt like I had to represent. I had to like just hit my talking points and, and, and go and don't say anything that might be, you know, not fully thought out. Like don't just riff. And, uh, the kind of fun place that I'm at right now is like, I mean, we're just two people sitting in my living room and that, and it's nice to sort of riff. So there's no, and that I'm not sort of like, Oh, I got to hit that point so that people buy the book. It's like, I don't know people buy it or not at this point. Yeah. And it's cool to have a conversation. Oh, I do have one yeah. other thing. It's not even really a question. And I don't know if you've any interest in knowing this because who cares? But one thing that I haven't seen um, in other interviews with you around this book is that I wanted you to know has been a big topic of conversation between me and uh, my friends who've read the book is Katrina's mother. Oh, yeah. And I hope um, if the TV show gets made that she's a character. And so I very selfishly wanted to know like what Katrina's mother felt after she was no longer really in the story. I was like, I want to see that conversation, you know? Yeah. You know, um, I'm very interested in Katrina's mother too. And I'm interested in like the, the fact that the two, like, so the two trans women, they get a free and direct style that where you get to, you know, hear every bit of their thoughts. But, but I specifically didn't give Katrina a free and direct style because I felt like there's lots of voices by pregnant cis women and that I wasn't going to add anything that those voices had inside. If you want to read that experience, you can. And then I added... I think I added Katrina's mother in like one of the second revisions. She wasn't mm. one of the original characters. And then I've since, since publishing the book, I've become much more interested in Katrina and Katrina's mother than the trans woman. Cause I'm kind of like, what was like, I didn't go into their heads mm -hmm. for reasons of the writing process. But now I'm like, what, what is their deal? Like, you know, and I am happy about the TV show where that, can be part of it like I can kind of I'm doing the TV show in a totally different tone and style than the book it's cool like, I want it to be much I want it to be just a straight up comedy I um, picture it as Jane Le Jane Jane the Virgin oh did you did you yeah see that? that tone like, yeah I saw the first episode yeah. of that well that wasn't it gets a, better the thing the th part of it is that this the the formulas of writing TV are so dependent on whether or not it's a half hour, an hour. And so Jane the Virgin's uh, an hour. Uh -huh. And so you end up having um, the like anything that's an hour is sort of like hitting dr dramatic beats, whereas anything that's a half hour ends up hitting a three-act comedy structure. Fascinating. So the choice to do a half hour ends up meaning that I'm like, it's sort of a natural place for comedy as opposed to drama. Mm -hmm. And I... I began to sort of think about it as like that the most subversive thing I could do is sort of just like really lean into like a kind of madcap comedy uh -huh. that people like in the way that people like they'll like go home 
I mean, Sex in the City, right, is not a classic comedy, but because it's a 30 minutes, it has a comedy formula to it. Uh-huh. And that people are really comfortable. They go home, it's 11 o'clock at night when they're alone and they want to like feel feel comfortable, they turn on Friends, they turn on Seinfeld, they turn on Simpsons, they turn on, you know, whatever, Sex in the City. And to me, like, something subversive to do would be, like, I actually want them to, like, be like, I need to be comfortable right now. I'm going to hang out with some trans women. Mm-hmm. And and I felt like that's a that's a thing that can happen outside of the of the content or the subject matter. So, uh, so it's, it's interesting because writing Katrina's mother as a comedic character is a totally different prospect than writing her as a sort of dramatic, um, you know, weight in Katrina's life yep. and, uh, and how to do that. And, 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 you know, I read, I was, you did, you did an interview with, uh, Kathy Hong Park. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I was reading minor feelings a couple of weeks ago as I was thinking about, you know, these questions of representation and stuff like that. And, uh, I don't really know how I'm going to do her character. I mean, part of it's, I hope that I have, I eventually get a writer, a writer's room where I can have people help me. Mm-hmm. But as of right now, I have to do it. So yeah. How to, like how to how to do that relationship whether that relationship has has questions of race built into it whether or not it's just just a you know uh because it also in a half hour you have her, her mom's going to get 2 minutes of screen time right. 1 minute of screen time because that's just how the formula works and like, what what can I really do in a minute or two, and in a second episode? I mean, over a, over many over a season or two, you can do a whole lot. Those minutes add up, but right. uh, it's just a totally different thing than than the pros. I I I really hope it gets yeah. made. I, I certainly hope so too. I really <laughs> hope so. But you know, even if it doesn't, it's going to be really interesting to see how having to conform to the form and resist the form changes your queer thriller queer financial thriller if it does yeah i mean i i'm i'm afraid of becoming a tv writer Uh you know i'm afraid of those beats becoming too familiar at the same time that you know those similar beats are in detransition baby like when you talk about it being trick chiclet yep like the narrative structure is essentially two two kind of rom-com structures that just cut back and forth and then there's like a strange tale that connects chronologically to the beginning of the other one but but the one of the reasons why i think it's comfortable and readable is that people are are feeling those beats in a context that they're not expecting them, yeah. But they, but they are getting those same pleasures, and, yes. and I. So I, I think the move from. What I do anyway to, a TV sitcom is is not, as far as you know. So long as I get to like, play with it the way I want, it's not as far a leap as it may, initially seem. Mm-hmm. 
Oh my goodness. Well, this this has just been Thank totally you so much for such, over. Yeah. such, such a pleasure. Um, okay, I'm going to stop our recording. Okay. Um, You've been listening to episode 98 of Commonplace with novelist Tori Peters. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. This episode was produced by me, Valentin Conady, Langa Chinyoka, and Christine LaRusso. Many thanks to Picador, Grove Atlantic, Arsenal Pulp, and Penguin Random House for donating books. The music you're listening to was composed and performed by Judah Darwin Zucker Gorin. You can find his first EP, Just For Now, on Spotify. Thank you to everyone who sends us messages of support and encouragement on social media or via email. Thank you to all of the patrons who support Commonplace financially. And thank you, listener. Thank you for listening. Thank you.